Welcome to Bevel, the podcast extension of Canadian Interiors, the longest-running interior design magazine in Canada published since 1964. I am host and editor-in-chief Peter Sopchak. Bevel is a place where we step away from the photographs and talk with interesting folks about interesting ideas and issues facing the design world today. Although we have been in the COVID trenches for what seems like an incessantly long period of time, there now appears to be light at the end of this tunnel. With vaccination rates on a speedy incline and phased reopenings across the provinces, things are slowly returning to normal. But we're not out of the woods just yet. And even when the pandemic is officially declared over, its effects will be long-lasting. Which is why we are sitting down today with Joanna Hoffman, CEO of Oomph Group, to discuss why your space planning, project management, and procurement skills are urgently needed, and what it will take to get your firm through the crisis by finding creative ways to generate revenue and other stopgap solutions that, while not necessarily permanent, will help you to not only stay on your feet, but continue marching on even after normalcy returns. A creative marketing and business development leader, Joanna is known for her ability to integrate inventive marketing tactics with business development strategies to drive results for architecture, engineering, and construction firms and organizations. She has held executive marketing and business development positions with global leaders such as B&H Architects, Fork Inc., and Stantec, where she established global marketing and business development infrastructures, devised strategic business development strategies to meet KPIs and revenue targets, and led successful market entries into Asia, the Americas, and the Middle East. So first, I want to say thank you very much for coming on the show and joining us today, Joanna, and engaging in what I'm sure is going to be a fascinating topic. Um, You have been advising practitioners in creative industries, including many in the architecture and design fields, about the importance of having an agile, resilient practice, one that can withstand sudden changes, be they industry-specific changes or broader changes that are occurring out in the, the economy or society. And if there's anything that fits the definition of change, I think it's COVID. So we're obviously going to be tackling a large issue today in our conversation. So I want to say thank you very much for joining us today. Thank you very much for having me. It's a pleasure to be here and to participate in the Bevel podcast. So although COVID-19 has obviously affected many of the built sectors where designers look to for work, um, In particular, we're talking about hospitality, retail, commercial, but there's also other sectors that have been uh, greatly affected by the impact of COVID. Uh, There's actually been seismic shifts occurring within the built industries in ways that affect architecture and design firms long before this pandemic has actually hit. So I want to start there and ask you if you can explain a bit about what some of those shifts have been and how they have been impacting designers and their businesses. Mm -hmm. You know, construction is the biggest industry in the world and is the worst performing. Productivity and earnings are lower than in all other industry groups. Risk is high and cost and time overruns are standard. How buildings are financed, designed and built has remained virtually unchanged. 
while other industries have been disrupted and transformed by the internet and digital technologies. But now technology has evolved sufficiently to make new ways of building possible. And we're on the cusp of seeing a huge transformation of the architecture, engineering, interior design, and construction industry. A lot of this is being driven by new technologies, products, and processes, such as 3D, modular components, mass timber, light gauge steel. They all make it possible to build much faster and cheaper than ever before. Environmental issues are also driving the change. And we are seeing that, for instance, in the case of cement, which is one of the global economy's most carbon polluting industries. It's responsible for about 8% of global carbon emissions. So the search is on for alternatives with much lower carbon footprints. But beyond, beyond the cost of environmental, beyond cost and the environmental impact, the great significance of these new materials and technologies for designers in particular is that they are driving the, a change in the building process itself, which is really now evolving into more of an industrial type of process with modular construction components that are manufactured offsite in highly automated factories and then delivered just in time for on-site assembly using automated processes which is very much the way that cars are made. This will have a profound impact because it will result in job sites with much fewer workers, but also for designers because it will change the design process itself, the sequence of work and the volume of bespoke design and construction details. You know, a lot of this is a lot of this will already be included in prefabricated products and modular components that now will just require assembly. So in tandem with these technology shifts, drive, the drive to contain costs is also a major driver of change. And primarily the need for affordable housing. This is one of the biggest challenges that we face not only in Canada and the United States, but in all the rapidly urbanizing cities in the developing world, where roughly a third of residents, which is hundreds of millions of people, lack electricity, running water, and basic sanitation. This is precisely why we're seeing the first successful 3D applications in affordable housing in projects in Latin America and Africa. The demand for affordable housing and the new technologies are driving another huge shift, which is the appearance of a whole new type of player into the industry. Until now, investment in this sector has been limited to ownership of real estate assets, but the design and construction industry itself have not attracted the same levels of investment as high-tech, manufacturing, and consumer goods. That is now changing. The opportunity is so vast that it is now attracting venture capital firms and hedge funds who are chasing deals in a virtually untapped sector. 
their objective is return on investment. So they will revolutionize the industry's business models, focusing on cost control, process, and vertical integration to maximize profits. For designers, these new players will have a similar impact to what the adoption of P3 had. You have to remember that P3s were primarily a way for governments to offload risk and cost overruns from taxpayer-funded projects to the private sector. But in doing so, they altered the project hierarchy and architects went from being the prime consultant to being subordinate to general contractors. Now, the search for maximum profits will drive the adoption of industrial approaches and new technology, which again will shift where and how designers participate in the process. Beyond this, we also have three other huge trends that we're already familiar with, but that now will escalate. The first one is adaptability. Already before COVID, project typologies were breaking down and blending. Large mixed-use projects that have offices, hotels, condos, theaters, amusement parks, retail are now common. As well, many healthcare and civic environments now have sophisticated hospitality, retail, and lifestyle features. But COVID will now take flexibility to a whole new level as everyone now grapples with new distancing requirements and variable occupancy because of remote work and learning. And while most people will again go to an office or a school, it will be a mix of physical and remote attendance. So every area and space in a building will now have to morph continuously to accommodate changing occupancy and multiple uses. I imagine that we will see a huge demand for open spaces that can be continuously reconfigured with flexible partitions and also systems furniture that can be easily separated and reassembled. The other major trend that will accelerate is consolidation and globalization, which have led to ever larger architecture and design firms. Canadians have done very well here. We have firms that are global leaders. WSB has 50,000 employees, SNC-Lavalin 52,000, and Stantec 22,000. They rank globally at number seven, 10, and 11. These homegrown giants are investing heavily in research, new technologies, and equipment. And they will ensure that Canadians stay at the forefront of trends and technologies, but they will also drive major changes here at home that will trickle down and affect even the smallest of firms. And the last of these uh, trends is the participation of ancillary sector players that are moving in and taking work that was traditionally performed by architecture and interior design firms, such as, for instance, the global real estate brokers, who now provide workplace interior design 
and project management services on renovation projects to hospitality brands, for instance. So all of these trends is what are happening now. So that's, that's fascinating. You, you laid out what could almost be looked at as a, a buffet of seismic shifts that are affecting the built industry uh, and, and connected, um, connecting industries. There's a couple, though, uh, right near the end of what you were talking about that obviously caught my ear and are of interest to a lot of uh, players in the industry. You talked about consolidation and globalization, and uh, you also talked about ancillary sector players. I'm fascinated by that um, because while there's been an obvious rise in conglomerates and uh, you know multinationals creating a ripple effect that has been disrupting small to medium-sized firms in the A and D sector, uh, the sectors that these these uh, you know these these larger players, these conglomerates, are gobbling up. For instance, you know they tend to seem to gravitate towards institutional healthcare. Uh, obviously, a lot of government-related projects. These these sectors, they still need designers to design spaces, right? So my question is, if I was a recent design school graduate, are my employment prospects threatened at all? Put another way, uh, let me say this, is there still room for designers or is it just, <laughs> is it just new bosses uh, that have changed? And, you know, as I say that, I'm reminded of, a f- song by the who um, won't get fooled again. At the very end of the song, <laughs> they say, meet the new bosses, same as the old bosses. <laughs> so that, yeah, to, my question is if I was a design school graduate, how am I screwed or is there still work for me? Absolutely. You know, designers, creativity, understanding of space and spatial relationships their analytical and reasoning skills, ability to communicate complex ideas, attention to detail, and sophisticated technical knowledge are exactly the skills that are needed most today. Architects and interior designers will continue to play a leading role, but the firms they work in, the materials they specify, the tools they use, and how they work will change. One way to understand the disruption that is taking place and what the future holds for design firms and designers is to look at the marketing industry, the industry that I belong to, already went through a nearly identical process. And so this is what the sequence of of events looks like. First, you have the appearance of digital tools and the slow, gradual adoption of new technologies and the emergence of new types of companies. These developments are fueled by venture capital. Then comes a global shock, followed by a recovery, which then fuels ever larger increases in venture capital. Finally, the new technologies gain critical mass and rapid mainstream adoption. So this is how it worked in the marketing industry. Websites first appeared in 1991, evolved slowly, and finally broke through in 1995, 
ushering in the digital marketing age. Hotmail, first major email provider, launched in 1996. 1998 brought Google search and Google ads appeared in 2000. Continuous technical evolution coupled with mountains of venture capital and rampant speculation led to the dot-com crash of 2000, triggering a severe recession. However, venture capital continued backing these new concepts and companies. And between 2002 and 2004, social media networks Friendster, LinkedIn, and Facebook were launched, forever changing communications, marketing, and the world. While these new types of companies were growing, in 2005, marketing was still dominated by global advertising agencies who, as architects of the brand, still led most advertising campaigns using television and print as the primary vehicles for promoting client products and for expressing their creativity and excellence. However, as the internet and digital capabilities continue to evolve and we're able to provide the marketplace with new tools that were faster, more convenient and cheaper to use, marketing began its steady shift from traditional approaches and media channels towards digital. And the explosion of innovation and creativity followed. And today, the marketing industry is bigger than it ever was and employs more people than ever before, including vast numbers of graphic and multimedia designers. Global ad agencies still do the traditional prestige campaigns for the big brands, but most of the promotional work and the tools and the channels that are now used are designed and deployed by software coders in millions of tech companies. And this is exactly what we're seeing now in the design and the construction world. Traditional architecture firms still lead in most sectors and do all the prestige projects. But digital tools and processes have entered the design world, with BIM being a game changer. Venture capital is now fueling the production of new materials and construction processes, and new types of vertically integrated companies are sprouting up, like Katera. But then we have a shock, and COVID brings the world to a screeching halt. New companies like Katera can't sustain the shock and go under. But this is a hiccup. Their innovation and cost-effective solutions are apparent and point the way forward. There will be no going back. Economic recovery from COVID will bring even more venture capital into the sector, and our industry is on its way to being changed forever. In the evolving future, traditional architecture firms will still get the top prestige projects, the unique museums, hotels, restaurants, amusement parks, office and condo towers, as well as bespoke private residential. 
but the majority of multi-unit residential, affordable housing, commercial, industrial, public, and civic projects will increasingly go to firms familiar with the new technology that can offer a much faster, convenient, and cheaper service and product. So what does this mean for designers? Millennials and today's Gen Z graduates are digital natives. They are lightning fast at adopting new technology and much more flexible, adaptable, and entrepreneurial than previous generations. Don't forget, Google and Facebook and many of today's other tech giants were conceived in university dorms by kids who were barely out of their teens. And look now at the numbers of kids and teenagers who are YouTube, Instagram, and even TikTok millionaires. So I think digital babies will do just fine. I also believe that many of today's design graduates will strike out on their own much sooner than ever before, develop whole new types of firms, new ways of working, and new designs that you and I cannot even begin to imagine today. So they'll be fine. There's a lot there that you just brought up to unpack, <laughs> but you know, we've been talking a lot about the business of design which obviously is important and has been affected greatly by, by these shifts we've been talking about. I want to shift uh, gears though and ask, so all these changes are influencing the business of design, but I'm wondering, are they influencing actual design in any way? Let me put that um, slightly differently. Is there, uh, has there been effect in the quality of design that we've been seeing as a result of these shifts? Mm-hmm. There are many ways of qualifying and defining design quality and design excellence. And Canadian firms are delivering outstanding work on all forms. So one area of looking at it is from a point of view of sustainability and resilience. We have many firms that are working at the forefront of sustainable design, delivering net zero, passive house, district energy projects across all sectors and project typologies. These applications demand great creativity and technical understanding to arrive at designs that push the technical envelope and are also aesthetically pleasing. We are also seeing great design in the creative use of environmentally sensitive materials and ethically manufactured products. As well, we can look from the point of view of innovation and design complexity. Design firms of all sizes are now actively exploring new design and construction processes. 3D opens a whole new world of possibilities because it literally explodes the range of shapes that you can work with, making it possible to design organically shaped and free-flowing structures like never before. One aspect of 3D that I find extremely exciting is that currently the technology is only suitable for small one-story structures. 
So you won't see 3D being used in the huge projects that are being done by the mega firms who probably will focus more on the industrial approaches to construction. This leaves 3D to the smaller firms working in private residential and in small commercial projects. And so it's an incredible opportunity for enterprising firms, small firms, to stand out and gain a competitive edge. As well, technology, for instance, in healthcare, has greatly escalated the complexity of most projects. And the demands on designers' ingenuity and the ability to incorporate advanced technical systems into environments, while still enhancing the user experience and wellness, demands great design ability and more talent than ever before. As well, when we look at the aesthetic part of design, the art of design, Many designers and firms are currently producing work that stands out for its creativity, its aesthetic beauty, and exciting design, particularly in hospitality, entertainment, landmark civic, and private residential work. And in the next two years, when 3D evolves to be sufficiently developed for mainstream use, especially by small firms, Watch out. Creativity in design is going to go to a whole new level we haven't seen before. So absolutely amazing design is being produced in every aspect. Well, that is definitely a positive thing to hear. Uh, it's nice to know that we're not on the edge of ex uh, extinction here. We're not on the precipice. But amidst all of what we're talking about, it sounds to me a lot like uh, the COVID pandemic is acting much like a crock pot. It's intensifying pressures that small and medium-sized firms have already been feeling, uh, and it's expanding the cracks under the firmament of a business model that they used to know and follow quite well. Um, so, you know, it, when I look at that, I think that, and it's, it's somewhat sad to, to hear someone have to say this, but, you know, the truth is that when we come out of the other end of this pandemic, which hopefully will be soon, uh, there are still going to be casualties. There are still going to be some corpses on the side of the road, firms that weren't able to adapt um, or, or were just overwhelmed by, by the, the changes going on. Uh, and the interesting thing is, you know, we talk a lot about how firms, if they want to survive, they have to be nimble and they have to pivot is a word that's used a lot. The pandemic pivot or the pandemic uh, dance I've heard a lot about. A lot of memes have popped up about that. What does being nimble and what does pivoting mean to you? What is your advice to firms if they want to come out of this alive, so to speak? Mm -hmm. In a much more competitive and rapidly changing environment, the business side of the practice will now be more important than ever before. Most design firms have good financial and human resource systems in place, but they still lack a competitive brand position and a focused, proactive approach to business development. And so to be nimble, to be able to pivot, and to be able to stay in business and move forward, 
The first and most important thing that firms need to look at now is brand positioning, which is what you need to differentiate your practice from competitors and to be able to connect with prospective clients in a manner that is meaningful to the clients. Brand position is expressed through key messages that are client-focused, that explain who you are selling to, what you are selling, the value that you provide, what you are best at, and why potential clients should believe it. But when you look at most design firm websites, you see generic descriptions of their approach to design, identical lists of services and sectors, along with team biographies and project images. Because they lack a defined brand position, homepages typically feature information that is then duplicated on the team and the project pages. And you see all sorts of platitudes that are a given, such as licensed to practice in Ontario, and the dreaded, we deliver on time and on budget or content that is completely irrelevant to clients, such as, for instance, owned by shareholding employees. You can take the homepage copy from almost any website, apply it to another firm, and it still applies. So here's an example, for instance, that I looked up to, to, to give your listeners um, a concrete example. It's from a firm of about 35 employees. And this is typical of most firms. Our comprehensive team includes professionals encompassing multiple facets of building design. We have architects, interior designers, technologists, planners, and sustainability experts, allowing our company to provide excellent service on a broad range of projects. Our portfolio of work includes residential, hospitality, educational, industrial, healthcare, and cultural projects in both the private and public sectors. Known for our excellent design, we take pride in our work at all scales. These are self-focused statements that don't mention the value or the benefits that this firm provides, or why its design is excellent, or how their professionals apply their creativity, expertise, and technical skills to solve client challenges. So a brand position is about making a connection with prospective buyers based on their needs, their concerns, and their challenges. And it really has to explain how your expertise and services address these issues and provide value. It lets you connect emotionally with prospects and it sets your firm apart and positions you to procure the right fees for your work. I think one reason why the typical approach is, is generic is that designers have been trained to focus on their creative talent their aesthetic and technical expertise. And there is much less emphasis placed on the problem-solving aspects of their work and on project and client management processes. 
So this is reflected on websites where you don't often see descriptions of a project's challenges or explanations of how the firm successfully addressed this. And you rarely see descriptions of the firm's approach and processes to client, project, and administrative management. The only areas where design firms are correct in highlighting aesthetics and creativity are for firms that work in hospitality, retail, entertainment, and certain civic projects like museums, where clients need imaginative designs because they are integral to the marketing of their facilities. But for most clients, practical design solutions and flawless project management and administration are as important as the design itself, because these are the elements that shape their project experience and satisfaction, much more than design awards. The best example that I ever saw of a client-focused approach that used the process to differentiate a firm came from a residential interior design I met in California who worked as a sole practitioner. And the reason why I love this example is that it shows that a competitive differentiator is important for all firms, not just the big ones. So this residential interior designer um, had worked out a very unique way of managing the purchasing and the administration and the billing of projects. I have worked in private interior residential design firms, and I can tell you that the billing is incredibly complex, much more complex than most other businesses. Because if you think when you're furnishing, let's say you're doing a complete living room and a complete dining room, you are purchasing hundreds of items at different moments. So if you are doing a sofa that is being custom designed, you have to buy fabric and trims. You have to pay the fabric house a deposit. Then you have to pay for the fabric before it can go to the sofa maker, who you then have to give a deposit to. And then you have to bill when the sofa maker is finished and so on and so forth. Every item has deposit and final bill. And you're doing this across hundreds of items. So you can just imagine what the billing is like. I used to spend hours every month work walking clients through their bill and trying to make a sense of it for them and also for us it was very very confusing so this fellow had developed this spreadsheet where he had every item and all the components of the item and he showed when you know the deposit was being paid and when the uh, the final invoice was for every single item and then it was an, another column he had the invoice numbers and he was tracking it also as it affected the complete budget of the project and so at one glance, the client could see, oh, yes, we paid the deposit for the sofa. Now this is the other invoice. We paid the deposit for the trim. This is the other invoice. When he was invited to pitch and present to clients, you know, typically clients that hire an interior designer will get names from either someone in whose home they were and they liked, or they looked at Canadian interiors and saw a project that they liked or they go to Facebook, or they will search on Google. They'll go to the 
website of the firm to look at the style, to make sure that this is the style that they like for their home. If you like traditional country English with lots of chins, and you look at a website that is all sleek marble and steel, you're not going to interview that design firm. But you're going to interview three of other firms who have who show work that you could live in. So by the time that you show up to pitch, the client will have already narrowed down the decision based on style. And then it's all about connecting and chemistry. Most designers will spend the time with the client talking about the kind of work that they do and showing photographs and they'll describe the process in general. This fellow in California would spend more than half of the pitch showing how they build and how they manage the project budget and showing how they were able to make it as easy and, and convenient for the client to, to, to participate in one of the most stress-inducing parts of the process. He never, ever lost a pitch. Never lost a pitch. So it shows how you can actually use administrative processes to set yourself aside from your competitors. And these processes address a real client need and fear. The other area where now has to come to the, to the fore and that design firms have really need to focus on is research, which is also something that is not really done a great deal. When you're developing a positioning for your firm that is based, focused on client needs, you're going to make all sorts of assumptions. Many of these assumptions will be based on your experience in the sector and on previous work, but client needs are always changing. So to come up with messages that truly resonate and connect with the clients, you need to test your assumptions. This is particularly important if you're looking to extend your practice into a new geographic area, to extend your service offering, to penetrate a sector in which you have limited experience, or if you are returning to a sector in which you haven't worked for a while. And, you know, this last point, um, the experience here at home, our experience is a very good example of this. I've been marketing and developing BD plans for design firms for 30 years, but I hadn't worked as a marketing agency in over a decade. And my recent experience had been with giant firms. So to understand what small and mid-sized firms are now dealing with, I've spent the past year and a half interviewing firm leaders to learn how their practice environment has changed and what their current needs are. The result is our service offering is completely different from what we offered before, which consisted primarily of marketing tactics such as PR campaigns, promotional tools, or special events. Today, most firms have in-house marketing teams that handle these tactics. But what I saw was a lack of strategic branding and selling expertise, which is what is now needed. So this is how we have now focused our service offering. We still do tactics, but we're concentrating on addressing the current need in the marketplace 
And this offering now sets us apart from local competitors, which are still tactic-oriented for the most part. But if I had not done the research, I would not have been able to come up with a completely different way of positioning my marketing agency. And so it's critical. It's also about understanding the big picture, your client's industry, the trends that they are dealing with, their competitive factors, and also other parts of their operations, like human resources, finance, technical, and security. The people who lead these areas are often part of the decision-making team. And demonstrating that you understand their needs and how the spaces that you will design can make them more effective is often what gets them to support the choice of your firm. For private clients, it's understanding their fears and their concerns, which often center around budget and process management. As well, the trend today is to provide a turnkey one-stop shopping service. Immersing yourself in your target market's entire business can point you towards ancillary services that you can add or that you can offer by teaming up with other companies. For instance, if you design retail or hospitality environments, being able to help clients with inventory, cash management, or security systems can be invaluable, particularly for clients who are launching their first boutique or restaurant and have no experience in these areas. Another important area for research is client satisfaction surveys that will tell you how your firm your work and your services are perceived. This is also something that isn't done very often, but the firms that do do this are always surprised at the results and are always able to improve aspects of their practice. Lastly, there's competitive research, knowing who your competitors are and how you compare to them. In competitive bid situations and strategic pursuits, this helps you to highlight advantages that you have that you know they don't, or prepare messages and content that will counterbalance their strengths and highlight their weaknesses. So research really is something that firms now need to continuously do. And one thing that I am seeing all of the market leaders now are highlighting research on their website and are using research to really enhance their client, the value that they give clients. The other area, so beyond a defined brand positioning, research, the other key areas that you need to be agile and to stay competitive are marketing and business development. Traditionally, professionals have operated under the assumption that if you're good, work will find its way to you. This is a leftover from days when licensed professionals were strictly forbidden to promote their services, and design culture as we know it 
has evolved with a retained stigma around selling. But now with increased competition and COVID, the flow of referrals and walk-in business has been completely disturbed. So knowing how to sell and having an ongoing business development program supported by marketing activities is a must. Marketing tactics like public speaking and public relations generate awareness and leads. Business development and sales convert the leads and the prospects into clients. Both elements have to be seamlessly intertwined and to reinforce each other using the same brand and value messages that have flown directly from the market research that you conducted and the positioning, the brand positioning that you developed. So it's all one seamless system. This is where I see a gap in many firms. You have the marketing team activities that are generally not directly linked to the partner's business development efforts and are not really designed for targeting prospects and stakeholders with content that highlights value, benefits, and solutions with through relevant thought leadership to support building a relationship and building trust. The other gap that I see is in sales expertise. Most designers have not been trained on how to establish a dialogue around the prospect situation and needs or how to set the stage for an ongoing conversation to develop the relationship, to nurture trust, and to lead the prospect to the conclusion that you are the firm that they need for their situation. So these are the three really critical areas that I see. Now, how do you stay, how do you become even more competitive and how do you stay in the game? Old timers still remember the real estate market crash of 89 and the ensuing industry slump that lasted about seven years during which hundreds of design firms went under. Since then, we've had three other recessions, the dot-com bust of 2000, the global economic crash of 08, and now the disruption from COVID. When you look at the firms that failed, those that survived but limped along, taking years to regain their pre-shock levels, and those that thrived and used the downturns to pivot, to retool, and to leap ahead, we can draw many lessons. And really, the first of all is a nimble and flexible mindset. For decades, how firms functioned, how they were managed, and how they went to market didn't change. But now... The only constant is change, particularly with, and particularly now that there is so much disruption coming to the industry. Once COVID settles down, things are not going back to the way they were. Once COVID settles down, the disruption that is coming to our sector is going to explode. And so 
we're looking at continuous change for many years to come. Therefore, you must be prepared to always be reassessing your competitive position, your service and delivery methods, but also now you need to look at your firm's culture and people management, which now are really front and center thanks to COVID and to all the rapidly evolving social consciousness movements. So the idea that you're going to go back to working like it's been decades before, that's finished. You got to get used to being continuously nimble and flexible. The other key area is do not put all of your eggs in one basket. Boutiques that are focused on one sector only are extremely vulnerable. Every downturn we've had has affected different sectors. COVID now has devastated hospitality, workplace, and retail, which, by the way, was already suffering because of the shift to e-commerce. Having seen how many boutiques have found themselves almost out of business during these various downturns, I have come to believe that one-sector boutiques that only provide a traditional design service should no longer exist. You need what I call a stool with three legs so that if one leg breaks off, and another leg is wobbling or bent, the stool is still standing. However, if you really just want to practice in one sector only, then now you must extend your service offering beyond the traditional scope to provide a turnkey one-stop shopping service. And there's an American architecture firm in Texas called Huckabee, who is a brilliant example of this. When the global economic crash of 08 hit, Huckabee was a small firm that had about 25, 30 people, and they designed K-12 schools. And they were, because everything ground to a halt in the United States, because, you know, the 08 crash affected real estate, mortgages, construction severely, they found themselves almost out of work. They had a client, a school, who had asked them to manage their bond program. But Huckabee had been reluctant because this had nothing to do with design. But now, not wanting to lose one of the very few clients they had left, they said, okay, we'll take a shot at it. And they turned out to do it really well. We're very good at it. And they actually found the work interesting. And so this made the light bulb went on. And they began to look and see, well, what else could we do for our clients? And, you know, this being the United States, the one area that leapt out at them was security, because unfortunately, school shootings in the United States are, are very common. And so they chose to focus on that. And they have now, they hire ex-FBI agents, ex-police and ex-detectives. They've hired experts in shooting scenarios and managing shooting scenarios. They now provide shooter, live shooter training to their clients, and they now build 
all the tactics for dealing with a live shooter into their design. So if you're in a school and there's a shooter, they've now built all sorts of ways for a teacher to lead the kids into a safe space, that they know that they're safe. And Huckabee went, they survived the crash. They went from being 25 to 30 people. Today, they are over 250 people. And they are the leading school design firm in the southwest of the United States. They're now exploring going into other areas. And I wouldn't be surprised if they also now become curriculum experts. <laughs> but this is a perfect idea. If you want to stay in the one sector, you now need to look at doing more than just the design. Lastly, strategic alliances are now more important than ever. By teaming up with other firms whose expertise amplifies yours, or companies who have the technology advances that are now becoming common in the new evolving areas, will enable you to deliver a comprehensive service. But also, you can benefit from each other's network and from each other's business development activities, right? Now, what happens if you have to pivot? And we're seeing it now. To get through a crisis like COVID, you need to find creative ways of generating revenue. You, want, you need to keep your doors open. You need to be able to make your payroll. You need to be able to pay the lease, the rent. So one of the things that that entails is taking on work that may not be what your firm typically does, as Huckabee did doing the bond program. But it's a stopgap solution that in the short term provides cash flow, at least until things turn around. One way to do this is, for instance, for adding new services. And at the recent interior design show, IDS 2021, we heard from hospitality firms that have added graphic design, branding services, multimedia design to their service lineup. Other ways are doing work in new sectors or geographic areas. Many hospitality firms have also taken on private residential work. I've heard from several that have been doing this because private residential has flourished during COVID. During the real estate crash of 1990, the residential market collapsed. I led the repositioning of a residential interior design firm into the hospitality market. So the exact opposite of what we're seeing now. As well, the growth in mixed use projects and the blending of typologies with hospitality and retail elements, now important features in education, healthcare and retirement long-term living facilities. These are all areas where interior design firms can now extend into particularly as these are areas with huge inflows of money and funding that will go long after COVID. Another tactic is, you know, driving cash flow. In the short term, the drive to revenue, look for areas that have to adapt their facilities and spaces for COVID. Coming in, come September, kids are going to go back to school. What are all these schools having to do? to accommodate kids with the new safe distancing requirements, right? Just like schools, community organizations, clinics, 
what, what are they all doing in your area and in adjacent communities or towns to prepare for reopening? Interior designers have space planning, project management, and procurement skills that are urgently needed now. So if I was an interior design firm that needed to, to drive cash flow and find work, I would focus on contacting schools, community centers, all these areas in my community and beyond to find out, do you need help in preparing your space for September and for you know, people flowing back into it? Another, another um, related to this is a return to work or return to business service with standard elements. You know, you can package it into a, a, a one price a service that includes floor plans, flexible partitionings, a return to work plan for a fixed uh, price to promote to businesses in your community. And lastly, something that is just beginning to come into the industry that is very standard in marketing, which is you know, vendor of record accounts. These are standing contracts that to provide specific services on an ongoing basis. And so instead of being hired to design a new uh, space or to renovate a space, you provide continuous consulting services and, and feedback and to a client. And it's more on an ongoing retainer basis. This helps clients, for instance, with you know, basic and maintenance or emergency situations. But for the design firm is revenue that will help you to you know, keep standing until COVID is over and the world and the economy recover. So these are all you know, how you can set your firm ongoing to be flexible, to prosper, to remain competitive, but also short-term measures to survive the current shock. Wow, that's incredible. You've covered uh, topics like brand positioning, research, marketing, business development. You've in this conversation alone, you've covered topics that encompass entire classes in business school. So uh, this has been incredible. I think we've actually, in essence, treated our listeners to a masterclass in, uh, in all these topics. So I want to say thank you very much for opening up your insights to, uh, to our listeners and to our readers. This, a lot of the stuff you've brought up is stuff I don't think a lot of them uh, spend a lot of time thinking about. The truth is mm -hmm. they probably don't because they're focused on design. They're focused mm -hmm. on the art of design and architecture and they're not business minded. I, I know that sounds dismissive, but the truth is when I'm talking to a lot of designers, they're much more interested in the aesthetics than they are the business. Um, and when things go sideways as they have recently or any of the other downturns that you mentioned, the uh, the late 80s, the 90s, the, the, the aughts, all those downturns, um, it was kind of easy to figure out who has a business mind and who doesn't. Mm -hmm. But that's that, that, that 
an excuse. So uh, I think if anything, uh, the situation we're in and we've all been experiencing is a, a, a lens for a lot of designers to really realize they have to focus on business as well as making spaces prettier and better and functioning better. And I think mm-hmm. you've brought a lot of that uh, out in our conversation today. So I want to say thank you very, very much. Uh, I'm sure a lot of designers are going to be getting in touch with you to say, Hey, you, you said this, could you expand on that? Could you help us out with this? So uh, I, I hope that that, I hope the designers take advantage of that opportunity. And uh, I think I'd want to talk with you a little further down the road and maybe come back to some of these as well. Um, Cause there's, there's a lot of meat on these bones that we've laid out today that I think is worth chewing on a little more. So let's look forward to that. But uh, until then, Joanna, I want to say thank you very much. Peter, thank you for this incredible opportunity. I hope that it, I welcome these opportunities like I do speaking at industry conferences because it helps designers. My, I love to help people and in particular designers in small firms who may not be in a position to hire a consultant. I hope that when they listen to this, that it will help them and also give them, encourage them that there's a lot that they can do and point them in the right direction. And by um, all means, you know, if they contact me, I'm happy to chat with them on the phone and explain further. And I would love to come back to the podcast. So thank you for the opportunity. Excellent. Thank you, Joanna. I really appreciate it. Thank you for joining us on this very special episode of Bevel. Be sure to check out our other episodes, as well as plenty of other great content at Canadian Interiors by visiting canadianinteriors.com where you can find our social media links and how to subscribe to the magazine. And of course, we encourage you to share Bevel with your networks. This is Peter Sobchak, and until next time, listeners, keep designing.